I don't know if you've ever been caving, where you intentionally go under the earth into darkness and fear, uh, but a lot of thoughts might come to your mind. It is, if anything, an exhilarating, pressure-filled experience. I personally think it's terrifying. Um, I went on a guided tour a couple of times and. Silver Dollar City in southwest Missouri, and also in Boy Scouts, I went on an unguided time about three feet into a cave and about three feet out, went home early. If you've ever gone in a cave like this, you look around and you might be the crazy person who says, this is so cool, stalagmites, stalactites. The rest of us think about how old and terrifying and new and wacky it all is. There's darkness and coldness, strange creatures hanging from the ceiling, strange creatures crawling on the ground or on the wall. But most importantly, what's terrifying about being under the earth in this way is you can get trapped. You can get lost. You can be lost down there forever. So one of the most important things you do when you're exploring a cave, I think, is to have a guide. Someone who can point you the way out. Someone who's been there before. And on top of them being able to point you to cool things, they can show you where lightness really is. And so in that way, when we approach Genesis 6, or at least the first half of it this morning, it's a continuation of the downward spiral of humanity. And if you're not careful, you can get lost and stay down there forever. It's a dark thing to look at. And I'm willing to say it's one of the most difficult parts, at least for me, to, to excavate. You see what I did there? Caving, excavating, to, to explore. Worked really hard on that transition. You can read it and go, wait, what? And then you keep on reading and you go, time out. Wait, what is he talking about? Now, our passage is like a dark, dangerous cave. And for months, I've seen it coming. Recently, I had breakfast with a pastor friend in town who recently preached this maybe five years ago. And all he said was, good luck with chapter six when you get there. And I thought, thanks. But I think it's important whenever we approach the Bible, we should cling really close to what the Bible gives us in its authorial guides. We should cling really close to the guide of the text and allow this guide to take us in and out or around wherever we find the Scriptures leading us. And every, every book of the Bible has a guide. Every book of the Bible has an author who's, you could say, been there before. Our guide this morning is continually Moses, the man who scribed for us this narrative to, a direct, uh, or to, to direct our hearts to God through this terrifying scene. Now, let me give you a summary statement, a guiding theme that'll be played out in our sermon. You can see all the tops and turns and stalactites and stalagmites of the text, but what we see here is wickedness grieves God's heart, provokes His judgment from which none can escape apart from His grace. Wickedness grieves God's heart and it provokes His judgment from which none can escape apart from God's Grace, this will be outlined for us this morning. So Moses paints for us a portrait that is clearly heavy. It's clearly dark. And he does this kind of like a movement, kind of like a flow. There's a narrative pattern of this where our climax will come at the end of the passage. And this pattern is how he regularly portrays Genesis as it unfolds. You can see this repeated cycle in Genesis. There's wickedness, then judgment. Then grace that comes from God, wickedness, judgment, and grace, on and on. 
And this will be the flow of today's sermon, Wickedness, Judgment, and Grace. Now, if you're here with us newly, I want to give you just a brief recap, or if you've been gone for weeks or you've just forgotten, we, we learned in the very beginning that God made everything and it was great. Everything was great. And there He created man and woman and placed them in what the Bible calls the garden. And for weeks, we circled around those texts and saw the beauty and glory of God's work, God's handiwork in creation. And then man reached for simply what wasn't his. He there disobeyed, or what the Bible calls he sinned by reaching for what wasn't his. He disobeyed, and not to be true, too dramatic, this unleashed havoc on creation. This unleashed the floodgates that seemed to be unrelenting in their terror. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, God said that He cursed the earth. And there, as the earth is cursed, He then subjected all of His creation to that curse. And from that point on, that was just in Genesis 3, from that point on, there'd be a battle, God would say, between good and evil. He, he called it the, the battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of man, a battle between what would come from Eve and what would come from Satan and his offspring. But hope would be delivered through this battle, not by the man's offspring conquering what was there, but by an offspring of the woman. And, and by that, just clearly what I mean is the, the lineage, the literal lineage that would come from the woman, where a certain man would come from Eve and actually crush or overcome evil altogether. And so it's, it's like a camera that zooms in on a spotlight that places the spotlight on each and every offspring that comes from the woman. So we encountered Seth, we encountered Cain, we encountered Abel, asking ourselves, are these the ones from whom we'll crush the seed of the serpent? And then the answer would be no. And then is this the one? No. And for on and on and on, for thousands of years, it was no, no, no. And so what the Bible does in some way is trace the offspring from Adam and Eve reaching for hope in each birth of men who would, who would come and save humanity. And so we approach Genesis 6 through this lens, through a long line of men in chapter 5, 1,500 years of death and destruction, where God's appointed author Moses guides you in now on Noah under the circumstance of absolute havoc, absolute chaos, absolute sin. Sinful image bearers of God who are reigning on the earth. So here we go. Stick with Moses as we're down in this cave. Allow him to unfold the reason for why he is bringing us to this high sense of depravity and darkness where the Scripture will, I think of, take you down, but then bring you back up to light. So first we see in the text, just right off the bat, wickedness multiplied. Not just wickedness on its own, but wickedness multiplied. There are two very complicated verses in this passage. Two very, I think, maybe it's not complicated to you, I think very complicated thoughts in this passage, and we see them first in verses 1 through 2. So let me just bring your attention to them again. It says, when man began to multiply on the face of the earth, of the land, or on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took them as their wives, as they chose them. Now, one of the most complicated parts of this is determining for yourself what these sons of God are, this phrase, sons of God. Who are the sons of God, and then who are the daughters of God? Now, there are, I think, two major ways to interpret this, kind of two primary ways over the course of church history to interpret these that I think have stood the test of time. Now, there are four total options, but 
two legitimate ones, and I'll, I'll give you both, but I'll say I actually prefer the second, so let me give me the one that I don't prefer. Who are the sons of God? The first one is held legitimately, but I disagree with, and the second one is also held legitimately, but I agree with, so it's the best, right? I'll say why and who these sons of God and daughters of men are. Now, option one you have is that the sons of God and the daughters of God or the daughters of man refer to the intermarriage of the line of Seth and the line of Cain. So you remember in the previous chapter or the previous two chapters, you have these two lineages. One was Cain, and that was portrayed as evil and despairing. And then you had the line of Seth, which was given bright lights, where the son of Seth, the offspring of Seth was Noah, who was given that name so that he would save people, right? So you have these two lines, and they began to marry each other. Think about what just happened, what Moses gave in the chapters before. These two offspring, these two genealogies after Eden, Cain's line all wandered away from God, and the other line wandered toward God. They started worshiping him in the name of the Lord, it says. So option one is Moses telling you that people were starting to marry outside of their tribe. They have a godly tribe and an ungodly tribe, not based on character. People were now, at least recorded in Scripture, now marrying each other, not based on the character of their own heart, but they were marrying each other because of their attraction. They were looking for what people were on the outside and then marrying them for that. And this is the beginning of some of Israel's worst actions. This is why I think it's a legitimate case. This is the beginning of some of Israel's worst actions. What did Israel continually do? They kept marrying outside the camp, breeding with these pagan worshipers who were then breeding these foreign, bringing these foreign gods into the camp, disrupting everything that the people of God were trying to do. And this is the beginning of the God. Beginning of that, they would say, Israel marrying foreign wives who brought in pagan worship. So the first option is Moses showing us how quickly man pursued the flesh's desire rather than God's desires, and it disrupts the people of God and the families of God. Now, option two, which I think is the right reading of the text, it is <laughs> much more strange, it is much darker, and it is far worse than marrying the wrong man though that is bad. The second option, which I'm convinced of, is that the sons of God are actually, hang on to this, are actually fallen angels who are demonly possessing men. They're fallen angels who are demonically possessing men and then marrying women. And I mean exactly what I'm saying there. Fallen angels, demonically possessing men and marrying women, rebelling against God, transgressing against God's boundaries, just like man and woman had boundaries given to them. Angels, too, created by God were given boundaries, given to them, and they were crossing those boundaries in order to create havoc and destruction. Now, let me make this case for you. There's a lot to be convinced by this, but I'll give you two reasons. The first one is just what the language that you and I have throughout the rest of the Old Testament. So, sons of God, that phrase there, being Elohim, the sons of God appears elsewhere in the Old Testament. Five other times it appears, and it always unmistakably describes angels, talks about angels. Let me just give you one example. Job chapter 1, verse 6, now there was a day when the sons of God, same Hebrew phrasing, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves to the Lord, and Satan came among them. So this phrase appears elsewhere, and it always refers to angels. So that's, that's one of the evidences of when I think about when we read sons of God, we should think of these are fallen angels. The second one, I think, it's, I think it's stronger evidence, though there's nothing weak about the first one. Maybe stronger evidence is how the New Testament uses this example in the Old Testament and interprets this for us. 
So a lot of the times when we read the scriptures, and I know a lot of us avoid the Old Testament because of passages like this, where it's like, don't know what that's about? I'll move on to the Psalm of the day. But allow the New Testament to actually inform your understanding of the Old Testament, the the New Testament interpretation of this. Two of the most uh, bizarre scriptures, and I don't mean that in a demeaning way, bizarre scriptures in the New Testament actually deal with this episode. So you have that in the New Testament, or I guess on your guys, in the New Testament, it actually encounters what is being talked about in Genesis 6. Maybe you're just a New Testament guy, and you even look at this and you go, I know it's from the Old Testament, it's hard, it's old, whatever. You'll come to a couple of passages and say, what's that talking about? Well, you won't know without instruction from the Old Testament. You won't understand the New Testament without cases of the Old Testament. So if you have a Bible, turn to the book of 2 Peter. The book of 2 Peter. Past all of the Pauline letters, the book of 2 Peter. Book of 2 Peter, chapter 2. Peter will, in rapid fire form, give us four quick scenarios. And he'll do this, hang with me here, he gives us four examples that are broken up into two pairs. And those two stand on their own, though it's four different examples. Those two go with each other. He's telling us in two pairs of why God hates false teachers. So listen to this, 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4, it says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, so there, that's one pair, two examples, if by turning the city of, I'm in verse 6, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. That's the third example. And if he rescued Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as the righteous man lived among those, day after day he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly. So here, Peter is using four rapid-fire quick scenarios of why God hates false teachers. But bear with me, 2 Peter, verses 6 through 7, that's the second pair. What's happening there? So I'm going to take the second pair, and then I'm going to work back to the first pair. The second pair, what's happening? God is rescuing Lot, even after he determines to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for what? Their sexual sin. Unspeakable wickedness was occurring in the second pair, and God decided to wipe away that area while also rescuing Lot. So the first pair, verses 4 and 5, what's happening there? God is rescuing Noah even as he determines to destroy wicked angels and floods, destroys the earth. And you think about that and you go, wait, you know, I'm a good student of the New Testament. What famous wicked deeds did angels do in the days of Noah in order to be locked up in chains and await judgment. What came just before rescuing Lot? There was judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. What came just before rescuing Noah? Well, there was judgment on angels. And then the earth was flooded, which happens right after our text in the remainder of chapter 6 and 7. Now, if you would turn to the book of Jude. Turn to the book of Jude, a final small book just before the book of Revelation. Turn to the book of Jude. There's no chapters in the book of Jude. There's just one, but look at verse 7 as you go there. So if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, just keep turning to the right. 
or lean over and look at someone else's and say, ah, my eyes aren't good enough right now. Feel fine to peer in. Turn to the book of Jude. Jude speaks of the two same episodes. Look at verse 7 of Jude. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. But before that, look at verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Angels not staying within their God-given boundary of authority, leaving their proper dwelling. Friend, what famous episode is Jude referring to? What famous episode is Peter referring to? He assumes that you know, based on your understanding of the Old Testament, that angels left their role and did unspeakable things, all in the category of sexual perverseness. All right, so back to Genesis chapter 2. Flip all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. What in the absolute world is Moses saying? In a world of talking serpents, in a world of trees that contain life in a tree of judgment, a world of flaming cherubims blocking Eden, that same world you might think is too far off to have something this chaotic and bizarre within it, but that same world of this kind of encounter has fallen angels who sought what was not theirs. They're called the sons of God, and they do the most horrific things imaginable. I think it's clearly what's being shown here is the wickedness before us where angels are demonically possessing men in order to breed with women. Now remember what Jesus came to do. He came to cast out demons who identified themselves as legion. We saw this in Matthew like a year ago. A man was being tormented, and you remember what the demons in that category wanted? Remember what the demons cried out to the Lord to allow them to do? They wanted to indwell man. They were begging to indwell man, even to the point where they looked at a herd of pigs. If they couldn't be in man, then they could be in the pigs, and the demons in the gospels seem to have some sort of fetish for merging with the physical. And all of this to us seems otherworldly, unless we think about things from Christian lenses or from a Christian perspective. We often avoid the idea of the spiritual world invading the physical world. It's why Halloween haunts so many of us. I drove by a house in my neighborhood today, and there was a skeleton on the garage. And I was like, why did you have to do that? Like, we're all handing out Twix later. But like, why did you have to go there? Because we, we often want the spiritual world outside of the physical world. It seems too mystical. It seems too otherworldly. We encounter things like demons and possession and the devil, and we go, that's really not how I play. But friend, that's basically the story of Christianity. God, who is spirit, takes on flesh, born mysteriously of a virgin. And as a result, Jesus, who is truly God and truly human, we see that Christianity, our religion, is shown to us by the Spirit of God who comes in to our hearts and turns man's affection to what is naturally not. This, this too, our whole world is actually seeing how the spiritual world encounters the physical. 
In many ways, this is actually what the virgin birth in the New Testament does. It takes this account and flip it upside down, as if mockering the evilness of the world, saying, you thought you could come in and invade and turn everything over? Look how I come in and invade and actually purchase for myself something that you tried to ruin. If you're here and you're not a Christian today, I can't really tell you what people around you believe. But what the Bible is clear about is we all, in our natural state, are unable to live a right or a righteous and godly life. We're not able to live a good life on our own. This is the teaching of the Scriptures, that that we need something not in us to save us. We actually need something outside of us to encounter us, to invade us spiritually and turn our lives over. What the Bible teaches is that it is God, friend, your Creator, the Creator, who invades a life and changes it from the inside out so that we can live according to His overwhelming goodness. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, you look at stuff like this and us too, we go, I don't like that. But in many ways, it's a portrayal of what has happened to all of us. Wickedness has almost wrapped itself around our necks and is choking us from the inside out, and we need a Savior to come in and break that down. That offer of a Savior is given to you in the Scriptures. His name is Jesus. He's known as Christ Jesus. His name is Christ because He's the Messiah that's been longed for in this text. He's the one that people for centuries have been calling out to come, invade their lives, and save them. Now back to all of us for Genesis. What is Moses showing us? Why is Moses giving us this circumstance? I think he's trying to portray and has portrayed how awful things have become. Already, chapter 6, after 5, 4, 3, it got so bad. It was so bad here on earth that even angels began rebelling in awful ways. And in many ways, Moses is portraying this as the straw that broke the camel's back. But guys, we're still in the cave. We've only gotten through one of these really weird verses. So we got a second one encountering us. So see the second one. It's in verse 4 of chapter 6 of Genesis. Look at verse 4. The Nephilim. How many of you Googled this earlier this week? I did like 50 times. Not good. Don't do it. They were on the earth in those days, it says. But also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they were born to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now my guess is you've read this passage before. My guess is maybe you've even asked about it or Googled it or looked at it. You may have read this verse, and a lot of people read this verse, and they see this, the Nephilim, are, are, is, an, is an offspring of the demonically possessed men who were breeding with the women of the time because they were attractive, and they created these monsters who were roaming the earth. I think that's a legitimate way to read it, but I don't think that's what's happening. Who are these super creature-type things, these monsters appearing before people, these giant men just roaming around the world. What Moses clearly says is that the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and afterwards. Now, what days were these? I think it's an identifier of a time when when the sons of God were coming into the daughters of man. I, I think what Moses is trying to capture for us in part is he's guiding us to see when all of this was happening. There's a timeline here of the um, progression of wickedness when all of this is happening. And then he says, uh, remember the, the sons of God and the daughters of men, but almost like a footnote saying, Psst, by the way, this awful wickedness, what happened during that time? That happened during the time of giants or monsters roaming the earth. 
That, that was the days just before the flood. So he's kind of given us a cultural marker. And people do this all the time. So you and I do this. We, we mark the timelines of our own day. You might say that you were born during the hippie movement. Right? Does that mean you were created by hippies? I don't know. Right? You're just born during that time. Maybe you were born before World War II. Or maybe when I was born, I was born in the time of Ronald Reagan, a cultural identifier. This, this, all this disgusting stuff was happening in the days of the Nephilim. Now, who were the Nephilim? Translated as giants. Now, were they giant people? Were they like 10 foot tall, 15 feet tall? We don't know. Were they, were they six feet tall? People then were much shorter than they are today. Maybe, maybe not. Was it a race of giants? In the text, Moses just said these monster-type men were there. They were mighty men of old, men of renown. Could be translated as heroes. That all of this was happening in the time of heroes where men, because of their size and strength, were kings of the world. They were the ones controlling it. Remember that time? It's when people placed power on height or strength. That's when all this was happening. Ancient heroes were roaming the earth. Now, check, check out, Moses assumed his readers knew about these people. Remember, Moses is writing to a particular audience who would have read this at a particular time, who would have heard of the flood, heard of the monsters, heard of the garden, all these things in order to be brought an understanding of what God was doing in their lives. They knew about these people. Look at his passing comment. He situates them in the circumstances of the day and of a time and of a people of great wickedness. They were, in other words, participants. But he also situates these monsters just seconds before what? Just verses before what incredible action? Just before we have Nephilim, we have, we have demonic-like practice, just before everything will be destroyed. So what Moses, I think, is guiding you in, remember to hold close to your guide. Remember, this was written to a particular people. What was Moses intending these people to understand? What Moses is guiding the Israelites within our own book of Genesis? I think he's saying, listen, wandering Israelites, you've heard of the fallen angels. You've heard of the Nephilim. Remember what happened to them? They too were judged. They were wiped off the map. So don't act like the angels going outside the boundary. Don't act like the monsters crushing people for their own pleasure, but instead obey God for the boundaries that he has given you and worship God. It would have been tempting. If someone walked in and was 12 feet tall, it would be tempting to not make them mayor of Enid, wouldn't it? That guy's got something going on, right? What do we do when our favorite college football team recruits someone who's 6'9 and 300 pounds and runs up 4440? We literally worship them. Grown men read Reddit for five hours a day about an 18-year-old. And this, and in this case, don't laugh like you don't do it. <laughs> and in this case, this is what really happens. People really did worship others because of their strength or their notoriety or what they could have brought to the Stand behind me. I'll slaughter everything in front of me. And when Moses is saying, obey God and worship God alone, the one who gave you the rule and reign of life on earth and the one who is deserving of everything. Friends, this is where this text preaches to us. You and I are tempted. This text gives us the case of sexual perversion. You and I are tempted in a hundred ways 
to call out to the world, I am in charge of my day, and I will do what I want. We are also tempted all the time to be distracted by anything that is not the one true God. And what Moses is saying in this text, in the brutality of the cave, is if you do that, you will die. He will judge you, and you will not survive. All right, let's leave the cave. Let's come up for light. Let's look around. <laughs> let's ask what just happened. Talk to your fellow cave divers. You just saw a second fall scenario where Genesis, a book of beginnings, is also a book of sin. It's a book of re-beginnings, but it's a book of judgment. And here we see where judgment, because of these two things, we see where judgment arrives. We see this in verses 5 through 7. Two words jump up from us out of verse 5. Look at, it. Look at the text, verse 5. The same Lord God who made everything and then saw that it was good the same Lord God who made man and woman as image bearers to reflect his glory and enjoy his rest-making work. Look at verse 5. He saw, the same Lord God saw, same language. What did he see? Every, every intention. And what else did he see? Only, only evil. He looked out and once saw everything is good and everyone worshiped. And here he looks out and he saw what once was very good and now is only evil everywhere was filled with wickedness. Now, as an aside from this, this is what people commonly call, a, this is what's identified as a doctrine known as total depravity or what others call radically depraved. This is the understanding that all of men and women since the fall, all of men and women are totally depraved or radically depraved. This is a stem of the doctrine of original sin by saying that we are radically or totally depraved from the inside out. Now, the doctrine understands the Bible to teach that because of the fall of man, every person born into the world is morally corrupt, enslaved to sin, apart from the grace of God, utterly unable to choose to follow God or choose to turn to Christ in faith for salvation. We need something outside of us to capture our affection and turn us to Him. Ephesians chapter 2 says, we are by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, called total depravity. Now, R.C. Sproul, one of my late heroes, R.C. Sproul said one time at, a, at an event, he was quoting John Calvin, where John Calvin said that babies were as depraved as rats. And R.C. Sproul, who loved John Calvin, R.C. Sproul said that this may be one of the few times that he disagreed with John Calvin. He said in disagreement with one of his heroes by saying, John says an unguarded statement that babies are depraved as rats. What a horrible thing for Calvin to say, comparing babies to rats. I disagree with Calvin. What a gross insult to the rat. The rat just chases cheese as God made him do it. But people made in the image of God blaspheme God. Remember how close Adam and Eve were to the Lord. Remember what kind of family worship they would have had within their own kids. On and on and on. A full lineage of an opportunity to pursue the Lord and obey Him. What is man continually to do? What are we known to do? We are totally depraved. And I don't want you to think about when you are totally depraved, it's mean, meaning you are as bad as you could ever be. Tim Challies, a, a famous writer and blogger, helps me out on this. He said, it, it's like if you put a drop of deadly poison 
in a cup of water. Who would drink that water now? That water is not full of poison, but it is completely or totally contaminated. This represents humans after the fall. While we are not wholly corrupt, you know, even Hitler's mom may have thought highly of Hitler or had hope for him to turn it around. It is a really hard thing to grasp. While we are not wholly corrupt, the Bible is clear that we are totally corrupt, and this passage shows it in its entirety. People love to ignore it, though. We, we seek to ignore it, or even worse, we refuse it. But you cannot disagree with what the totality of the Bible says, that the world was greatly wicked. Man's every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, and then it adds a word, continually, as if it wasn't bad enough. It's a cycle from the serpent to Eve to Adam to Cain to Lamech to the evil moment where the spiritual and the physical have united against God, their creator. And how does God respond? Moses says he sees it, and he responds. Look at verse 6 and 7. responds. Moses captures his words And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, and creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. A reversal of creation. Everything that's encountered there, all of it will be stirred up. It'll be blotted out. We can see this, if you think of the text as like a narrative, it's now like the camera who was zooming in on the awfulness of the earth, is now zooming up and seeing the very heart of God God on display. Now, you might have a lot of questions about this word regret. It does cause a lot of people to get anxiousness or have anxiousness about God. Does God regret? Can God change? Does God change His mind? If God changed His mind here, what if He changes His mind on me? I believe I've been saved from before the foundation of the world. But what if He just goes... Oopsie, Ah, I don't like you anymore. Is that what's being talked about here? In short, this language is emphasizing God's suffering. And let me play that out for you. You may have regret for something you've done in the past. Maybe it haunts you at night. It wakes you up in the morning. That's not what's happening here. Maybe you've had grief for what you've done to someone, someone or something That's not the kind of grief that's happening here. God, who is completely sovereign, doesn't make mistakes, (laughs) then he wouldn't be sovereign. He doesn't create, then go, oh, my bad, that kind of got out of control, I regret that, and then switcheroo and start over. The word here for regret is yin nehem, which means to be brought sorrow, to feel sorrow for something. It's like a dad disciplining his son grabs a paddle or grabs a switch, says to the son, with all honesty, this, this hurts me more than it does you. And what son has not looked up at his dad and said, that's impossible. No way! I'm the one who's being disciplined here. But it's like the dad responds and says, I am being brought sorrow. I am being brought sorrow because you image me. And here we have image bearers of the Lord doing awful things. And it says, the Lord looked down on him and had yin nehem, regret, sorrow, grief. 
God doesn't change. His mind doesn't change. He doesn't suffer like we do. And we know this because of what's said elsewhere about God. For example, it's said elsewhere but, or in other times. But in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 29, it says that God will not lie or have regret. Well, here it says he has regret, but there it says he won't have regret. The word regret in 1 Samuel and in other places is actually a different Hebrew word. It does mean to change, but in our case, just so you know, just so you can have confidence in the text, when the Lord looks out on His creation and is filled with regret, it means He, like you and I, could maybe barely understand He had sorrow for what had happened. You and I might regret things that we say meaning that we want to change how we might say something next. What I, what I actually mean is not that. Uh, in a month, I'll regret hanging in my Christmas lights, and I will promise to do it different next year. Last year, I had a ladder out of the back of a truck leaning against a house, and it was Enid, so it's 25-mile-an-hour uh, wind. Not doing that again. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm sure I'll have regret over it. I mean, set change or do something different. God looked out on His creation, and He had sorrow. And this is the kind of special speech from God where the author gives us very raw, very human-esque tones to it. And so this is a pattern that happens throughout the rest of Scripture. Throughout the rest of Scripture, we are being brought in almost on His level, if you will, to understand on our own human, simple level what God is like. The, the language we're sometimes given, not all the time given, the language that we're sometimes given is called anthropomorphic, meaning human-like, where God, who is spirit, is shown to extend His arm. We spirit, how can he extend his arm? But it helps us understand, it means he's coming for us. Or maybe he even sees with his eyes. But he's spirit, how does he have eyes? Or he's walking in the cool of the morning, or in this case, having been brought sorrow to his heart. I hope you understand the seriousness of sin within this passage. It is as serious as these situations, and the seriousness of sin always brings on judgment. We proudly and boastfully sing songs that talk about the grace that God has given us and how great is the sin of man that it shows God having sorrow but then responding in grace. You've heard of the hymn, Grace Greater Than All Our Sin. What made grace so marvelous? What made it so infinite? What made it so matchless in its grace? Well, alarmingly, dark is the stain that we cannot hide. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide, causing God sorrow, yet He responds in grace. The Lord saw what was there, had been brought sorrow for what man had become, and had sorrow in his heart. So there are two judgments given out by God. Look at verse 3 of the text. The first one is just the shortening of people's lives, kind of giving us a category here. This is both merciful and a judgment, merciful in that they will not live in total sin for 700, 800, 900 years but also judgment and that their lives are being cut off. The second judgment is decreation. We see this in verse 7. Look at it in the text. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things, and birds of the heavens. The word blot out means to wipe clean or make spotless. Same words are used in the book of 2 Kings. When God says that he'll wipe away Jerusalem like he would wipe dirt off a dish. And this is not like you and I's dishwashers where amazingly you have to wash it and then put it in the dishwasher. This is a complete, yeah, someone invent that. Uh, this is a complete wiping away in an instant. The creator who spoke creation into existence will wipe it all the way, blotting them all out. 
Which brings us to what Moses intends for us to see. So come out of the cave, friend, and see what Moses would have you remember and then look at. It says in verse 7, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, where we see grace here applied. Third point, grace is applied in this text. Now, if you've turned out, tuned out, listen again, hear me. In the narrative, there are demons and monsters, yes. There's judgment projected, yes. There's a flood that's coming in the next week. But Moses isn't just calling for you to see monsters and destruction. The emphasis on this text is found in the final verse. This is, this is a mountaintop that he is having us come up for, for fresh air, where God, who is gracious and merciful, applies his grace amazingly here. Now, a couple of things I want you to see that are important about this. It just says simply that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Moses didn't find favor. First thing I want you to see is Moses didn't find favor because he was awesome. There's nothing in this text that says that Moses is great. There's nothing that will come later about Moses that says he in his heart is awesome or great. We have no indication in the text that Noah's, Noah was inherently awesome. In fact, you see that favor is seen and applied and understood to Noah before the rest of his life carries out. Now, by the way, the word found is basically a passive word where he wasn't out searching and then found or discovered, like you might look for something with a you know, treasure map or something, but rather it was God who found him and drew him in. He was just a passive actor, but God had favor on him. You could almost say that Noah found favor because of God. And in fact, later on, it would be Noah who sinned, given everything. That we see the pattern again and again occurring. God blesses those and man falls away. But the second thing I want you to notice here is the word favor. Translated eight other times. Only translated a couple times here as favor, but translated four times the amount throughout the rest of the Old Testament as grace. Noah was gracefully seen by God. And that's the emphasis of the story. In the midst of darkness, despair, wickedness, there was grace. God would have grace even as He would blot out evil. He would preserve what He promised. Where Noah from Lamech, from Seth, from Eve would be preserved because of the promise that was given to all of humanity. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 15 through 16, where a seed of the woman will crush the seed of the man, and a seed of the woman is being preserved. Moses <laughs> can sure tell a story, can't he? The grace of God here towards one man becomes the salvation of humanity. Here we see God's grace is their only hope. And what grace means is the unmerited, divine favor in spite of shortcomings. When God has grace on your life, it means there is unmerited, unearned, divine favor despite you. It is being applied onto you. It is the exact opposite of what you should tell your spouse or your girlfriend. I looked at you in all your wickedness and I chose to find, find favor on you. No, we say the opposite, don't you? I saw your heart and I wanted to marry you. But here we see God seeing man for what man really is and showed favor. In other words, Though all deserve punishment for sin, grace shows favor despite that sin. Grace is unmerited, divine favor, in spite of the positive demerit or positive deserving of judgment. Now, let me close with this. What do we do with this text? I've gone on long, but I'm going to go longer. What do we do with this text? Well, we can see how bad things are for sure, and we can see how faithful God is in preserving His promise. Absolutely. But I want you to be led to apply this text in your own life from the book of 2 Peter. Turn back to where we were we saw Peter recount 
the wickedness of false teachers to a certain group of people by using four scenarios, two of them from our passage today, and he will interpret this not only for us, but also apply it to us. 2 Peter chapter 2, I want you to see verse 4. We read it earlier, but see verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, and then I want you to go down to verse 9. Here's where, here's where Peter applies this text to us. If God did not spare his own angels when they sinned, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. If you're here and not a Christian, you can be assured that you will be seen for your heart's purity, meaning your impurity. The Bible says that all have sinned and have hearts that are called filthy, and that's you. Non-Christian, that's you. Sorry to be blunt, but the Bible shows that in the same way the world would be judged by a flood, and then Peter will later go on and say, in the same way it'll be judged by fire, friend, you need to know that you, by your own heart, will be judged. But what the Bible also does is you in your heart is it calls you to recognize your sin and search for someone to save you. The Bible is like a merciful siren or a bullhorn who is calling you to look in the mirror and to see your heart for what it is and then call upon the Lord to save you in the same way that he saved Noah. God, be gracious to me, a sinner or Enoch, who walked with the Lord. Friend, respond to him. Trust in him. Have hope in him. Have faith in him. And he will and can save you in the same way that he saved Noah, in the same way that he saved Lot. He will save you from what your sins deserve. Now, Christian, allow this to apply to you too. This text applies directly toward you. This is, this is your joy in verse 9. You are wandering in a world that feels so similar to Noah's day doesn't it? Look around. Be honest. What is different about that day than ours? And your hope is to be with Christ and here no longer, isn't it? Your hope is for the celestial city, as John Bunyan describes it, where there's no weeping, no sorrow, no pain. You look at 120 years and you go, I don't want to live that long. I want to be there now. I'm tired tired of this. On a regular basis, no sadness, no suffering, and you'll be tempted to feel, friend, you as a Christian will be tempted to feel that this truth is not real because the rest of the world says it's only going to get worse. You'll be tempted to feel that God will not rescue you from all of the wickedness that is around you. You'll feel like heaven is too far off, like, oh man, it may not happen. But Christian, rest in the promise that is given to you in the scriptures that the Lord Oh man, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment. Their day will come. It'll be all wiped out and your day will come too. The Bible begins with a perfect garden and it will end with a perfect kingdom. The the work of the Lord is mighty, graceful, and Christian will be faithful to you, those whom he has found favor in. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, 
we are thankful that you are clear about how wicked sin is. We are thankful that you are strong to aim to blot it out. God, we await the day where unrighteous will be given its full day in court and it will not stand. And God, we await the day and give us patience to do it, give us steadfastness to do it, perseverance to do it. Guide us with the hand that holds us so deeply to look for the day where we will see you for who you are, someone who sees us and finds favor in us because of your son's work for us. Oh God, may it be so in our hearts as it is in your truth. Amen.